Let me tell you why we are doing this little series called Ask Me Anything. Uh, we have a conviction here at Christ the King that, that Christianity is supposed to be a dialogue, that we're actually supposed to be talking. That's why Scripture always keeps talking about conversation over and over and over again. And uh, why we got stuck in the ruck of a monologue every single week, I'm not exactly sure, but that's really what happens, right? You know, we worship to a certain point in the service, then I come out and, and, and talk at you for about 35 minutes, and then we all go home. And so we just thought, what if we could actually knock down the barrier between uh, live interaction and actually have a conversation? Um, I don't have all the answers. Believe me. Don't believe me? Ask Laurel. Um, she'll tell you. I don't have all the answers. Um, I'm not a theologian. I'm a shepherd. That's my heart. And so, uh, uh, as we walk into this tonight, I just want you to know, um, if you cut me, I'll bleed. Um, and I don't know exactly what's going to show up on the screen. Hopefully, we can all walk together through this whole thing. Um, but what I do want to say is this. One of the things that I love about this place is you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with my answers. Hopefully, that, that's the kind of framework we can have. But the question is, will you stay in a relationship even if you don't agree with me? Because the Bible also talks about a friendship, and we're supposed to walk together in unity, whether we, we agree on all the little, small little incidentals or maybe even big things. God's called us as His church family to be unified, and so we want to walk out of here unified tonight even if you don't agree with me. And if you don't agree with me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to talk. Don't just pull away. We're just getting way too good at that in our society. You don't like what I have to say, then I'm out. It doesn't work that way. Not in God's family. It's not supposed to work that way. Um, so I want you to have that as well. I also want to say this. So um, uh, we didn't even get to tonight, and we had almost 100 questions come in. Uh, impossible to cover them all. Can't do it. Um, I'm not in charge of picking the questions. Uh, that's three people in the back room who are gathering them and compiling them right now. And uh, once again, can we make sure that that number just stays up on there as often as it possibly can so you can send it in if we trigger something? I'm not trying to sidestep your question. So if I don't get to your question, it's not personal, okay? Because I don't know you sent it, all right? So it's not personal. It's just we didn't get to it. And it doesn't mean it's unimportant. In fact, I'm going to say this to you. If God put that question on your heart, it's because he wants it to be answered. It may not be from me. Maybe from your small group leader. It could be from a friend. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you. Um, you could just turn to them and say, I, I got a question and see what happens. Uh, but but I, I really want you to know we're not trying to dodge anybody's question. We're really trying to get as many as we can. So anyway, we have exactly 35 minutes from now till we're done. And I promised my kids workers we'd be out of here on time. So live and in real time, here we go. Okay, you ready? All right, first question. Yeah. <sighs> Really? <laughs> Is it wrong to plan my church attendance around Seahawks games? Uh, yes, it's wrong. And you lost because God judged everyone that skipped all this year. Okay, here's the cool thing about coming to a church with multiple services. It doesn't matter, right? Because you can come Saturday night. If there's a game at 10 o'clock in the morning, you can come Saturday night. Or you can do DVR. Um, let, let me go a little deeper than that one. Uh, so if I look, because I don't have any context, I have no idea whether this is a fan or somebody trying to get even. I don't know. Maybe you're just really disappointed after this afternoon. I don't know. But I would say this. Um, I do think we have an issue of idolatry that we have to look at at some point. Which is what is really most important to you. 
And we see the discrepancy in idolatry because Exodus chapter 20 says, you shall have no other gods before me. And so we ask our question, what's an idol? An idol is anything that gets our soul attention and our soul passion. And I, and I, I have to say this, I do see a discrepancy between the amount of passion that I see people put towards their football team than they put towards Jesus. You know, that, that, that's just it, right? Because we do that, right? I mean, uh, this afternoon, I mean, I just, I'll watch a part of the game and it's just, people just come and unglued, and then they come to church and it's just like, we sing hallelujah, <laughs> the lamb is overcome. I'm like, really? So I do think it's a question of idolatry and, and what is first in your life. And I would say, as long as Jesus is first in your life, man, I want, you to, I want you to enjoy your team. I'm a Hawks fan. I love them all. I wish they'd get an offensive line, but other than that, um, <laughs> Lord Jesus, help a brother out, right? You know, Russell needs a little protection, all right? So anyways, but I would, so is it wrong? No, it's not, as long as you stay on this side of making sure that that, that, that team doesn't become your idol and that it doesn't take supremacy in your life, okay? Fair enough? All right, so okay, next question. What words of wisdom do you have for a young couple about to get married? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, first of all, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> and you knowing that is actually a really, really good thing. Um, so let, let, let me give you this. So I have, I have a son and a daughter, uh, 23. McKenna's going to be 21 this week, and they're both getting married this summer. So, I mean, I, we got some big stuff going on. So I'm, I'm answering this question live and in real time. And and I always point couples to Ephesians chapter 5, because Ephesians chapter 5 is the beautiful section in Scripture where Paul says, look, husbands and wives, this is how I want you to do it. And it's about love and respect. What, what, God, or what, what God really wants husbands to know is that you need to love your wife. And what God really wants wives to know is you need to respect your husband. And working that out, it's going to take you a whole lifetime. It's going to take you a whole lifetime. But I would say this. Don't fool yourself into thinking that two of you is enough, because it's not, and your humanity is going to prove me to be true. The two of you is not enough. You need a third party. That's why scripture said a cord of three strands is not easily broken. There is a central cord that needs to be in your relationship that you wrap yourself around, and that's the person of Jesus. Because he's the only one that can cover both of your multitude of sins. And I know right now, because you're not married, you don't think the other person is capable of sinning. <laughs> Give it a week. Um, and it will change in so many ways. And so my wisdom would be, you've got to do everything you can to put Christ in the center of it. I would also say this, don't spend all of your time getting ready for your wedding and neglect the fact that you're going to be married. Do all the work on the front end so that you're ready to be married because marriage is this interesting thing. I mean, just think about the equation, right? God takes an imperfect guy and an imperfect girl and puts them together and says, this is going to work. Well, it, it only works if God is in the center of it and both of you see that marriage is truly, in its simplest definition, it's a serving competition. My job every day is to outserve Laurel. And she tries to outserve me. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. But if you're willing to serve each other as Christ loved the church and served his church in laying down his life, if you're willing to take second place for the rest of your life, actually let's make it third place, 
then you might be ready, but you need to do the work on the front end. I think God has called us to that, and it's a beautiful picture of Jesus and his church. None of us are perfect. We need to ask forgiveness, and I'll tell you what, marriage is one of the most beautiful, refining fires that God will invite you into to prove to you that you need him in order to make that relationship work. So that would be the primary, primary thing. And if Braden and McKenna are here, great, awesome. Okay, so, all right. The CTK help struggling churches outside of the CTK umbrella? Well, that's a good question. Um, so the, the, the easy answer is yes, we do, actually. Um, so we, we create, um, well, first of all, we try to meet practical needs. So there was a little church in Blaine that had a building but no chairs. And we had extra chairs, so we just gave them our chairs because we didn't need them anymore. And they needed somewhere soft to sit, and they're brothers and sisters in Christ, so we, so we gave them our chairs. Um, we regularly invite people to come and go through. We have like a bone closet of equipment uh, that sometimes just gets out of data. We'll just come and let people go through that, and if it, can, if it helps meet a need, I mean, why should it sit upstairs in a storage room if God can use it? Um, and we do actually a lot of this internationally, which is really, really cool. So Laurel and I were able to take some assistance to the churches in Italy in different ways, and you all got to be a part of that because if you give to the missions budget, uh, we were able to take some of that over there and bless some of those churches. So, so we, we don't just look after the CTK umbrella because God doesn't have just a CTK umbrella. Jesus has a big K kingdom. There's no little K kingdoms involved. And we're supposed to be a part of that. Uh, one of my favorite things is once a quarter, we do something called uh, Pastors Praying for Pastors. So it's actually coming up here on the 25th. It's a couple weeks away. A couple years ago, Pastor Bob Marvin and I, um, we just started thinking, what, 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 how cool it would be if as pastors we could actually model unity. So some of you were here in the days when Bob would come over here and we'd preach at Cornwall, or we'd preach here all weekend, then we'd go to Cornwall and we'd preach over there. We're going to do that again in March, okay? Because um, it's just fun, and I love Bob, and he's a wild card, and we have a blast, and so he makes jokes and I cry, and it's perfect. Okay, so, um, and then I make him cry, and it's awesome, because he just, he just can't stand it when I do that. Uh, but we conceived this idea of, what if we gathered a small group of pastors together, started praying for each other? Well, the crazy thing just kind of took off. Um, We've had up to 100 pastors at a time, up to, sometimes less, uh, but just gathering together. And the deal is when we walk in the room together, nobody's going to ask you for anything. And you can't pray for your church, you have to pray for somebody else's. And we've created real friendships and real bonds. I think we've got more unity in the county right now than I've ever seen in my 20 years of being here. And I love being a part of something like that. Because this is the deal, and I wish, I wish we understood this. You know, every time... That, that Northside Community Church, Pastor Ted, Ted Swinburne, every time Northside baptizes somebody, we win. Amen. Our church, we all win. That's, that's a God thing, right? And we need to keep our eyes focused on that. In fact, sometimes just make my day. Come up and say, you know, we don't go to this church. We go to the competition. Just say it because I, I, I already have my answer. Because if you say you go to the competition, I'm going to say, you go to the devil's church? <laughs> really? And it'll freak you out and I'll have a lot of fun. Um, because um, the only competition we have in this county is Satan himself. Otherwise, we're family. We don't talk smack about family. We don't compare with family. We love family. That's what we're supposed to do. So when another church succeeds, we succeed. And so, yeah, we, we do look after as much as we can. If we, if we have something to help somebody, we'll do that. We'd love to. Okay, another question. Explain the difference, if any, between the various Bible versions. 
God, wow, okay. Okay, so there's some great ones. Um, so I preach from, I preach from uh, the New International Version, uh, the 1984 version. Okay, this is this one. It was a gift from my parents when I graduated from high school. I love it. When I was gone on sabbatical, the church actually had it rebound for me because it was falling apart. Um, and I just happen to love this version. So, but I also study from the New American Standard. I study from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Um, I will, I will cross-reference the message which is not a Bible translation, it's a paraphrase. Now, it's a paraphrase I enjoy because Dr. Eugene Peterson, uh, who have had the privilege of sitting underneath of his ministry, Dr. Peterson is also one of the foremost linguists in the world when it comes to Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So when he writes something freeform like that, I'm like, he's doing it out of a, a set of disciplines, so I really appreciate that from him. Um, I think it's important to be able to look at all of the different scriptures, and I'll kind of tell you, I'll give you just my snapshot. So the NIV 1984 is really a phrase-by-phrase phrase translation. And, and when you're working with Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, you need to understand their sentence structure, their grammar, and their form works very different than English does. And so uh, this is more of a phrase-by-phrase phrase type of translation. The New American Standard Version is word-by-word, word, which means you can, you can sometimes read it, and the sentences are a little tough to get out because they did it word-by-word word translation. Other translations will do it, will do it like theme-by-theme or chunk by chunk, and those ones get a little bit, sometimes you have to be careful with that kind of thing, because the further you get away from the original root of the text, the more, the more um, opportunity you have to miss something by a small amount. Here's what I love about a Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. They're very specific. And, and, and when they say, if, if, it's a, if it's a female form, it's a female form. If it's a male form, it's a male form. If it's emphatic, it's emphatic. If it's middle voice, it's middle voice. I mean, it has all of these different breakdowns, which allows us to translate the Scripture as accurately as we possibly can, because that's the goal. So I would encourage you, um, find the kind of Bible that works for you, but, do, but be, don't be afraid. So I, use, I also use something called Bible Gateway. So Bible Gateway, you can type in a verse, click translations, and it'll give me seven different ones that I've set up ahead of time. And they, they, they go side by side, and I can literally walk with them uh, all the way through the verse from top to bottom. So I preach from NIV 1984. If I ever don't use NIV 1984 in brackets, I'll put like ESV or I'll put NASB. And the reason that I'm doing that is because I would believe, it's my, it would be my professional opinion in that moment, that they may have a better translation than what the NIV 84 is. But I do think they're good. I think they're all solid. And I think you need to pick one that works well for you. One of the reasons I enjoy reading the message devotionally is because it just gives me a fresh perspective on Scripture that sometimes can get old and a little bit stale sometimes. So I'm, I'm always looking for new, new, they, they were talking about in the prayer room, they said they always hear me say, like, this is my favorite verse in the Bible. I say that a lot because they're all my favorite verses in the Bible, right? And I love all of them equally. So uh, pick, pick the version that works well with you and, and study it well, okay? All right, let's try another one. Why are those two red digital display panels on the wall above the audium, uh, uh, auditorium for? The two red digital displays. Oh, though, oh, yeah, okay, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay. Um, wow, I, yeah, okay, that's cool. So if a number shows up on those screens, it means uh, you get a little tag when you check your kid in, and it means your kid's having a little bit of a struggle and they need mom or dad. That's it. And so uh, if you ever see somebody just pop up in the service, uh, sometimes they're leaving because they don't like me or what I said. Um, 
And sometimes they're just going to rescue their kid and the child worker who's doing their best to quiet them down. And so that's it. The numbers will show up. I can barely see them. They're kind of up there in the, in the corner. But if you're a parent, you know exactly what that is. And uh, so if you see the little code, uh, make sure you bring your little ticket with you because we try to be really, really safe with kids. We don't give kids away to random people to just show up and say, I'd like that one. Because... Um, <laughs> You don't get to trade your kids in or upgrade around here. So you got what you got, God's sovereignty, that's the way it works. So, but that's what those little, that, those, those little things are for. And they're, that's pretty cool, right? In my church that I grew up in, we didn't have that kind of technology. So, you know, they just walk in and go, Grant's acting up again. And Ernie and Shirley would have to go and get me. So that's how it worked. So it happened often. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's cool. Hi, whoever you are. That's fun. Okay, cool. Awesome. All right. That's a long one. Okay, what do I say to someone who believes Jesus offers freedom from depression and anxiety, but doesn't know how to tap into that power? Let me look at that for a second again. What do I say to someone who believes Jesus offers freedom from depression and anxiety, but doesn't know how to tap into that power? Uh, This past summer, we did a series called Taboo. I was a little surprised when one of the most downloaded messages that we preached was my, my journey. Whew. There it is. Uh, my own journey with depression and anxiety. Uh, in case you don't know this about this place, we are highly transparent to the point where it will make you uncomfortable sometimes. It makes me uncomfortable all the time. Um, the freedom from depression and anxiety is obviously we believe that God is... Well, what does the Bible say? It is for freedom that Christ sets you free. So he wants you to be free. But we live in a broken world, and sometimes, for multiple different reasons, and as a part of that message, I laid out all, there all, there's all different kinds of reasons. There's physical reasons, spiritual reasons, there can be familial reasons. Uh, and Jesus wants us to be free from all of that, but it's a process. And for some of us, it can take a long time. I remember sharing with the people in this room how my doctor prescribed a little, a little red bottle to me and how I fought that so hard. Because I'm just like, I should be able to pray my way out of it. I should be able to, to push my way out of it. I mean, I should, I should just be spiritually strong enough to break this thing off. And my doc, um, who's actually probably sitting here in the back row somewhere, uh, He just talked about how sometimes we need a little help to get the water line from here to here so you can breathe so you're not drowning. So I told you guys, I made the decision. Um, Do I believe that Jesus can break the power of anxiety and depression all by himself through fasting and prayer? Yeah, I I think that can happen. But I don't think that's everybody's story. I think some of us need, it's not that we don't rely on Jesus for help but that we use a different kind of help. Um, I believe that the Holy Spirit talks to my doctor. I believe my doctor has a love for me that Jesus put there because on his own probably he wouldn't, you know, I I probably wouldn't love me either. Um, But for some reason he connected the two of us and I'm so unbelievably thankful for that. So I would say this, um, as you're going through this, I would say, Be open to however God wants to help you. Because he may want to help you through a doctor. He may want to help you through medication. He may want to help you through counseling. 
He may want to help you through coming up front after service, week after week after week, and having the same group of people lay hands on your shoulder and say, we're going to get you through this. God's help can come in lots of different ways. Um, I, I read through the entire book of Psalms seven times trying to break anxiety off of me because I actually saw that David struggled with this issue. It keeps coming up. I mean, it keeps saying, God took me to the depths, the depths of it. Uh, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, Job in his heartbreak, Paul, I mean, if, if you remember the message that we did in the Taboo series, I listed off like seven biblical patriarchs who, who said that they, were, that they were sorrow in sorrow to the point of death. Well, that put me in really good company. And I realized that God has different ways to help different people. So what I would say to your friend is I would say, don't fall into the trap of thinking one size fits all. Don't think there's just one way to get well. Do I think you can get well? Yes, I do. Am I perfectly well today? Not really. <laughs> Am I off medication because my doc helped me get there? Yeah, praise God. I'm so thankful. My little black rain cloud's not right here. It's kind of over there, back there, left it in the wings because there's people praying for me tonight, which is awesome. So I would say, don't jump to conclusions about that person. And whatever you do, I would say this. Don't fall into the trap as a friend of saying that, that you must have something in your life if you can't break free of this. That can actually do a lot of damage to somebody who's honestly striving. I prayed with a friend of mine the other day who, who was struggling, struggling deeply with this whole thing. Somebody had told her, well, the reason you're depressed is because you've got this root of bitterness down in your life. And here's what we discovered as we prayed through it together. Actually, that was the lie. The lie was she had a root of bitterness, so she got fixated on the root of bitterness to the point where she was doubting God's love and all the rest of that, and we had to uncover that and go, whoa, 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 whoa. What if you don't? What if God sets you free, and you are free indeed? You just bought that lie. So I would say we have to be really, really careful. Um, I love the fact that we, have, that we have professionals right here in our own church that love to walk alongside of people with this one. And so I would say tapping into that power can come in lots of different ways, and all of them need to work together. It's not like I'm saying you don't need to pray about it. No, you need to pray about it. Do you need to search your soul and see if there's something in there? Because let's face it, one of, the, one of the things, one of the possible things or reasons for depression can be unconfessed sin. Scripture says that. It doesn't always have to be, though. But sometimes we need a prayer counselor to walk alongside of us and, and lead us in that direction so that we understand those pieces. So don't make it a one-size-fits-all. You have to be willing to do all of that really, really difficult, hard work. But I can also sit before you today and tell you there's victory. Because God does not want you to stay there. He didn't want me to stay there. He doesn't want you to stay there. And so we can live free. Okay? Hopefully that was somewhat helpful. All right, let's go to the next one here. How does CTK feel about women in ministry and pastoring roles? Well, um, we have uh, women pastors at Christ the King Church. Uh, Pastor Melanie has actually been here longer than I have. Uh, she, Pastor Wenny, Pastor Dendy, just retired. Um, so we believe in the ministry of all believers. Uh, and because we believe that, um, we try to practice what we preach when it comes to that. Now, this has become an issue that can be somewhat divisive, different times. Um, 
But I would say this, here's the tension that we feel, right? We also try to be biblical. So we believe God created male and female to be different, to be unique, and to be fantastic in the way that God designed them. Um, I'm married to this beautiful woman, and I'll tell you what, she is just, she is such an unbelievable gift in my life. And Laurel is wired differently. She has different leadership gifts. She has different spiritual gifts than I do. And hopefully together we create a great balance and a great partner and a great team. And I believe God put all those gifts inside of my wife. And when she says something, I listen to her. And so uh, when we look at Scripture, when it talks about male and female, we see that as a unique way that God brought people together. And because we were brought together in a unique way, we're supposed to operate in unique, in unique ways. And so Scripture talks about uh, when it comes to ministry and pastoring roles, uh, the role of elder, deacon, deaconess. And I would believe there's another one which is often misunderstood and overlooked, which is uh, the role of advisor. Okay? Elder is a male role according to Scripture. Okay? Deacon is also a male role. Deaconess is a female role. And advisor is actually gender neutral. So we have multiple different ways of doing this. So we have an advisory council here at Christ the King made up of men and women. And I'll tell you what, the conversations and leadership that we glean from that group of people is absolutely fantastic. We also have elder groups with women pastors. I mean, we're a little bit of a mix of just about everything, and we, uh, we're uncomfortable with that mess. We're uncomfortable with that mess because um, my Bible says there's neither male nor female, so we've been created different, but we're all created for God's glory in His way. Uh, you know, people would uh, be surprised. Um, so one of the people that's in the booth back there actually answering, helping filter questions and get stuff um, is Pastor Melanie. You know why? Because I trust her. Because we've been doing this for a really, really long time together, and I know she knows my heart, and I know she's got my back. And so uh, we, affirm, we affirm our sisters in Christ. We need you. Did you hear me, church? We need you. And you are not second class in any way, shape, or form. So, there we go. Okay? Next one. As a Christian, is it right for me to attend a gay relative's wedding? Wow, we just went there, didn't we? Okay. Um, so... Hmm. So here's some circumstances that I've seen. Uh, I think the fear that I hear kind of wrapped around that is if I go, am I condoning something that I believe the Bible speaks very clearly about? And that's a tough one, right? Because to love someone um, is to love them. I believe I can love somebody without condoning. Jesus loves me without condoning my sinful issues, of which I have many. So I think the question you really need to ask is, okay, at what point am I going to burn the bridge? And if I burn the bridge, do I also lose the right to be able to speak into their life should they ever come to me? That's a tough one. I'm not sure I've got a great answer right off the top of my head. Here's what I've seen with this issue is that a lot of damage can be done when we just kind of 
Can we just kind of walk through that? So I would say this. I, I think you should go through a series of questions. Um, Jesus was both grace and truth, right? And he held them both in perfect tension all of the time. He was able to do that because he was God and we are not. So I would encourage you to, 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 to think very, very carefully about if I choose not to go, am I going to burn the bridge to the point where I'm going to lose the relationship? Because I don't believe any time we're called to actually lose that relationship because we're supposed to be salt and light. And we don't want salt and light. Now, it doesn't mean you condone. It doesn't mean you're standing there. And I think this is something, boy, I'll tell you what, boy, you'd have to pray about this one long and hard and press in deeply and say, Holy Spirit, you're going to need to give me conviction. You're going to need to give me deep conviction about what it is that you want me to do. Um, you're not going to lose your Christianity. Like, do we understand that part? You're not going to lose your Christianity. In fact, Jesus interacted with lots of people who held very different viewpoints than he did. Some of them were driven by ethnicity. Some of them were driven by, by belief system. Jesus was always about the relationship because he wanted the relationship to survive and thrive. Okay? But you'd have to go to the Lord on that one. That's, that's tough. That's tough and that's real. Okay. Why do some of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have different versions of the same story? Ah, oh, um, because they're four different authors, and that's the perspective that God wants to give to us. So, uh, Matthew, if you read Matthew's Gospel, he shows up as a bit of an outsider talking about what happened with the inside group. Uh, Mark is obviously impatient because he says the word immediately more times than any other Gospel writer. Immediately, Jesus went and did this. Immediately, the group got up and went to the other side of the lake. Immediately, immediately, immediately. So for those of you that are impatient, you'd love Mark. Um, Luke was a doctor, so he writes like a doctor would. Lots of detail, um, lots of extra detail that goes in there. And then John writes from a relational perspective. Here's the beautiful thing about those four, um, about those four men uh, who the Holy Spirit spoke through and superintended their writing in order to give us the account of Scripture as we've got it. They each have a different perspective and they each give us different details. So what you may find in one detail, in one gospel, you're not going to find in the other details, which is why I would encourage you, if you're a student of the Word, you need to invest in what I would call a harmony of the gospels. Okay? You can buy them online. It's a book. It's called The Harmony of the Gospels. It puts all four accounts side by side on one page. So you can look and go, oh, John did this part. Luke said this part. Why did this go here? Why did that go here? And it allows you to be able to understand all four Gospels at the same time together. So the reason they're different is because they have four different, four different perspectives. Now, I want to say this. Here's what makes your Bible so beautiful. Think about it. 66 different books. 40 different authors, written over a 4,000 plus period, depending on how you date certain books, with one central theme and no prolific contradiction that cannot be put there by some understanding of the original person's intent, the audience, or the historical context. I'll tell you what, I can't even pass a phone message to my wife without getting some detail wrong, right? 
And that's the sanctity of Scripture and how God steps in right there and says, this is how you know this book is so unbelievable. Because God protected it and he continues to protect it to this day. That's why we believe it is the final authority in all things, even when it makes us uncomfortable. And I'll tell you what, um, one of these days I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a series called Things That I Wish Jesus Didn't Say. <laughs> because he gets in my face over and over again. Referring back to the last question, here's the issue that I have. People like to, to separate out somebody else's sin. Because have you ever noticed how easy it is to comment on everybody else's sin? And everybody else's issue? Boy, we're really, really good at talking about everybody else's stuff. My Bible doesn't let me do that. It gets in my face. It challenges me. It pushes me. It checks my attitude. It comes against me in judgment. I mean, it literally. And that's why you have to make a decision on the front end whether or not this is the authority or not. Because this book will push on you. Jesus will push on you. If Jesus isn't pushing on you, you need to read the Gospels again. Because he loves us enough to do that. Scripture says the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And discipline comes in this. I mean, I used to think I was all fine, good, and wonderful. I mean, good grief. I grew up in a Baptist church. I went to Sunday school. I had a perfect attendance record. I got a Timothy Award from the Iwana Clubs. I mean, I was nailed in. And then the Bible had the audacity to say there's no one righteous, not even one. Like, what do you mean I don't get a white hat? I earned my white hat. I've got a meritorious award, right? It's just like there are no white hats. Only Jesus gets a white hat. You get to wear a black hat. Sorry, Grant. Like, what are you talking about? You don't get to say that. I'm one of the good people. The Bible says oh, there are no good people. What? What? So you have to decide on the front end whether or not you're going to allow this book to have authority of you when it makes your life easy and when it makes your life really, really, really hard. Okay? All right. Four minutes. Really? We're done. Okay, one more. Last question. What do I do with resentment and anger in my heart towards people I love? Oh, boy. Okay. What do I do with resentment and anger in my heart towards people that I love? Well, the good news is you say you still love them. So that's good, right? But you have anger and you have a resentment. This is one of the things that makes this so unbelievably difficult is because you have to look at context. And I don't know the context, right? So I don't know why you're angry or why you're resentful towards that person. But, but here's the example that I see from, from Jesus. Jesus has every reason to resent me because I sinned against him and my sin was so egregious that it cost the Son of God his life. I deserve nothing but anger, wrath, and judgment. I know that to be true. Even though I think I'm a pretty good person, I know the truth about me in the base of my soul. So I look at the example of Christ when it comes to forgiveness and I realize he could have done, he could have given me nothing but anger and resentment, those two things, but instead he gave me grace. And if God can do that for me, I don't believe I've ever met a human being that I could not at some level do that towards because God just set the standard when it comes to forgiveness. What did we read last week? 
When we were up here, we did that, that beautiful verse. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's the benchmark. That's the standard that we've all have been called to. And I would look at the alternative. When you look at resentment and anger, what can you do? You can hang on to that if you want to. But then I would ask, well, where is that getting you? The only place it can get you to is bitterness. It's the only place it's going to go. It manifests itself in only one way, and that's bitterness. So, the resentment and anger needs to be given away. And God says, I want it. That's why the Lord said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I mean, he wants us to do that because he knows revenge in our hands is a terrible, that's a terrible, terrible idea. So, here's what I've had to do. Because uh, I've been on both ends of this one. I've been, with very good reason, I've had people have resentment and anger towards me because I deserved it. I've also been on the one where I've had to make a decision about what I'm going to do. And I look at it through this lens. If Jesus could forgive me, he's called me to do exactly the same thing. Because I do not want to bring, drink the poison of difference, or the, po- the poison of bitterness. I choose instead to come to the foot of the cross and surrender it. Scripture says that Jesus took all of that stuff and he nailed it to the cross and disarmed the authorities. Well, anger and resentment, are, they're, they can become authorities in our life. So I bring it and I surrender it to Jesus and Jesus takes it according to Scripture and nails it to the cross so that, so that I'm not pinned to the ground with it anymore. And then I choose to release them from my judgment. And I say, God, you need to have your will in your way with this person. Because I find if I hold on to that, I, I sin. And I murder them in my brain over and over and over again. Every time I see them, I'm thinking things I know I should not be thinking. And so I have to make a choice. So what do I do with resentment and anger? You take it to the foot of the cross. You surrender it fully and completely. And you thank God that he didn't hold anger and resentment towards you. I would also say this. It's not a one-time deal. Sometimes you've got to come back over and over and over and over again and ask God to break that off of you because we get really, really good at owning it ourselves. So you have to surrender it, sometimes daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes every single time you see them. You've got to lay it down and surrender and remind yourself that's what Jesus did to you. Okay, 7.06, we're already a minute over. Now I'm going to have to go repent to our child care workers because I promised I'd have them out on time. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. Um, here's what's really crazy about this whole thing is uh, all of the questions tomorrow are going to be different. Um, so not, none of the three services are going to be the same. So you can, boy, you can pray for strength. You can come back if you want to and watch me squirm again. Um, which is good. I, I hope, if nothing else, um, I hope you heard that this is my heart. Because without this, this will not work. The Bible says, one of my favorite verses, <laughs> there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And I would never want my words to wound or hurt. But this is the authority. Because I do know one day, I'm going to stand in front of a trio 
not a quartet. Here's the good news. You don't get to be on my committee standing before the Trinity, and I don't get to be on yours either. But this is the standard by which, this is the standard by which God is going to at least judge the teachers in the room. So if nothing else, while you may disagree with me in some things, I hope you'll agree that it comes out of a heart of simply wanting to be faithful to this word. Because this is the book that saved my life. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for an opportunity to have a conversation, as uncomfortable as it may be at different times. God, would you help us to keep our eye on loving each other and loving you? God, would you give us great hope today, Lord, and help us to struggle with all of these things? Because, Lord, we know every one of these questions was wrapped in a person. And, Lord, I, love, I know that you love them more than I ever could. So I thank you for a church where we can at least attempt. God, I thank you that this is a church, too, where if we got it wrong, we could come back and say, I missed that one. God, thank you for loving us and being with us here tonight. But I pray that out of this, uh, your heart would have shone just a little bit brighter. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, ask me anything. Question number one. <laughs> yes, it's wrong, and that's why you lost. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, we got this last night. Is this really a popular question with people? Oh, my goodness. So here's how I would answer that question. Um, uh, so no, it's not wrong. And one of the cool things is that you go to a church with three options, right? So you can come Saturday night if there's a 10 o'clock game. There's also this really cool thing called DVR. If you don't know how to use it, find an eight-year-old. They'll teach you. Um, <laughs> it's pretty simple. But I would say this. Um, I think we have to be careful because I really believe Exodus 20 talks about having no other gods before him. And I see a tendency of idolatry when it comes towards this kind of thing. So let's just be honest for just a second, right? Um, you know, I, I, I watch you at, at, at the game, whether you're a Buffalo Wild Wings, right, or whatever it happens to be, and you're watching the game, you go, yeah! And then you come to church, it's like, we sing hallelujah. <laughs> So I think we have to be really, really careful that some things that, that are beautiful and wonderful, I love the Hawks, okay, just so you know, was I disappointed yesterday? Yeah, I mean, somebody get, somebody get my brother in Christ an offensive line, somebody <laughs> help a brother out, okay, he's getting beat up, but, um, but we have to be careful that those things don't become idols in our life. And you know what, we know how we define an idol. An idol is anything that takes precedent or time that you create and put energy, money, or time towards. And so I, I see people on a regular basis choosing that over the biblical command, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves. And so we have to be careful that it doesn't become idolatrous. Um, and so do we have to plan it? Uh, no, but I mean, if you got a 10 o'clock game, come Saturday night and connect with God's family so that we make sure we keep things in order and in priority. Okay, cool enough? All right, next question. Why are some activities at CTK uh, for age 18 and up only, and are there small groups for teens? So that's a great question. 
So one of the reasons why some activities are at CTK are for age of 18 up and only is because there is an age of legal consent, and in order to be able to be a part of certain groups, uh, you have to be able to say, this is my thing, and I, I want to, as an adult, participate in that. So that's a part of it. Are there small groups for teens? Yes, there are. Um, in our middle school and high school ministry, which is now run by Lem Yusita um, and his team, uh, have amazing small groups. They do discipleship groups, and they, we would love to get you connected. Um, if you're a parent and you want to get your middle school or your high school kids get connected in there, you can talk. Uh, you can talk to Lem or you can talk to any one of our volunteers with HSL or transit. We would love to do that. But some of, that, some of our classes, when we, especially when we deal in the areas of traumatic recovery, especially in the area of abuse, you have to be 18 years of age in order to be involved in that because of the content that we're walking through because some of it's pretty traumatic and hard for people, okay? So that's basically the answer to that one. Okay. My significant other and I are committed to each other. We live together and have children. What difference does a state paper make on our eternity? <laughs> um... So you're committed to each other, you live together, and you have children. What difference does a state paper make on our eternity? Well, you know, here's the interesting thing about the perspective of uh, it's just a piece of paper. Because um, I, I would challenge you to take that assertion, follow the logic through. Try that with a, with, a, with a speeding ticket sometime. Have the officer hand you a speeding ticket, tear it up into little pieces, throw it at him or her, and just say it's just a piece of paper and see how that works for you. Um, because it's not just a piece of paper. And, and Romans chapter 11, 12, and 13 says we're supposed to live under the governing authority. And the governing authority actually says that piece of paper has ramifications. But to me, there's a deeper issue there. Um, I love the fact that you are committed to each other. I think that's fantastic. Um, I love the fact um, uh, th that you have kids. But I would ask this question. What is the message you're sending to your children when it comes to being committed to each other? Um, and I deal with this all the time with couples who are cohabiting. One of the interesting things that a lot of people don't want to talk about is, is cohabiting couples who live together before they're married have a 300% higher incidence of divorce than those that don't. And the reason is because they've never, they've never dealt with the issue of permanency. Now, this apparently doesn't, doesn't, uh, it doesn't fit in this particular uh, scenario because you're committed to each other, you live together, and you have kids. And so I would say this. God has created a beautiful picture of marriage. It starts in Genesis chapter 1, shows up again in Song of Solomon. It's the same consistent story all the way through. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus speaks about it again. And then at the end of the book in Revelation 21, God specifically talks about this beautiful picture that's embedded with this. It's commitment in God's eyes, but also commitment with regards to the authority, the legal authority that God has placed over top of you. So to me, it's a matter of, opinion, uh, of obedience, and it's also a matter of modeling. So I have, I, I have a couple, same scenario. They've been married for a really, really long time. They wanted to get married, and I actually asked them, I said, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to paint a picture to your kids of what sacrifice, love, and commitment really, really looks like. So I actually asked them, even though they'd been together for a long time, um, I, actually, I actually asked them to commit to a, a period of sexual abstinence. Dad moved to the sofa for three months because he wanted to paint a picture for his kids that I will do anything to show your mom how beautiful, precious, and worthy she is of any kind of sacrifice I could make. I said, so I want you to know, what kind of story do you want your kids to say? 
Do you want them to be, it's just a piece of paper, or do you want them to have a deeper level of commitment? Because God, in his picture of marriage, has this beautiful idea of he's, he's the, the, the bridegroom and we're the bride, and he gave his life, laid down his life, laid down his rights for the sake of us. That's the picture. And I believe we need to be consistent in that. So I love the fact that you love each other. I love the fact that you have kids. I would, I, I would challenge you, what's the story you want to tell your children? Because how beautiful would it be if they could tell the story? I, I, I want you to know the level to which my mom and dad went to show our, their love for each other to us. Okay? I know it's not complete or exhaustive, but there's a piece for you. Okay? That's a great question, by the way. Thank you for being courageous enough to ask that. Okay. How do you stay motivated when most pastors have burned out and changed careers? Oh. Um, uh, so you guys are a big part of that. Uh, I'm a dinosaur. And I hear this all the time. I mean, I've been here since 1999, like 17 plus years. Uh, average tenure of a pastor in a church is usually two to three tops. Um, so that means you guys are really patient, um, and I love you for that. Um, years ago, years ago, I went to a, a meeting in Dallas with 42 young pastors. In order to be in the room, you had to have a church of 3,000 plus or whatever, and I'm sitting there with this group of guys. Um, to my knowledge, there's only two of us left in ministry, and that's heartbreaking to me because I see a lot of people burn out, and I see a lot of people just say, there's got to be an easier way to make a living. Um, so I stay motivated because of you guys when I look at your face every single week. My favorite moment is when I'm preaching and I realize you're not listening to me anymore because you've gotten off somewhere along the line. You're having a conversation with Jesus. That's what motivates me. If I can facilitate you talking to him in a different way, I just love that. That will energize me for the rest of my life. I love what I do. Uh, what motivates me as well is there's 200,000 people in this county that don't know Jesus yet, so we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, and we need to get the job done. I think I'm more motivated today than I've ever been before. Uh, one of the reasons why we made a shift in, in this idea from a single lead pastor to a lead team is because if you were here uh, three or four years ago, I was pretty close to that burnout place. I was pretty cooked because you can't carry something like this on your shoulders alone. You're not supposed to. Um, and so we made a strategic shift that we were going to share that load. Uh, so now we have a lead team and just like three of us on the lead team and we're all one third of one senior pastor because we're, none of us are good enough to do it alone. Um, and so the, a part of our motivation is to be able to keep that in life. Uh, one of the reasons why we can stay here like this is because you actually allow your pastors to be people which means if I totally blow it this morning, my, your Bible says you need to love me anyway and forgive me. And so I'll see you back here next week because that's how it's supposed to work. Um, but I've never thought about changing careers because I think I've got the best job in the world. So anyways, all right, next question. How do we show love to our broken world while still standing on truth? Truth can draw dividing lines. Oh boy, can it ever. Sanctity of marriage, doctrinal differences, and so on, not to mention politics. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so we go to the picture of Jesus whenever we're asking questions about ethics. Because he lived his life. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us for a little while, and we have seen his glory. So the glory of Jesus manifested itself here on earth, and we get a chance to see that. Um, 
And Jesus was always drawing lines for people. That's why he's so offensive at times. That's why you read your Bible. I mean, I, I used to think, I'm, just, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a good guy, right? I'm a good guy. Jesus is going to love me. He'll slap me a high five on the way into heaven because I'm a good person. And then I, then I start reading Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and they're just like, you're a wreck. You can't do any of this on your own. I read Romans. There's not a single one of you that's righteous. Nobody gets a white hat. Only Jesus gets a white hat. If you think you're wearing a white hat, you are mistaken and misguided. I'm like, the Bible has the audacity to call me out? That's crazy talk. And Jesus, the one who inspired this, is always drawing lines with people. And he draws lines because he loves us, whether it's popular or not. And in a world of being politically correct, I have to walk that tightrope every single week. Because God's called us to have biblical conviction, that's the truth, but at the same time to have gracious conversation, not condemnation. And let's be famous, the church is famous for condemnation, right? It's just like, you're wrong, you're a deviant, stop it, that's the answer. As opposed to, no, we're going to pursue truth together, and we're going to have hard conversations about difficult, difficult things. So one of the big buzz topics, right, um, sanctity of marriage, doctrinal differences. Um, so let's talk about sexuality for a little bit. That's one that's just dividing people all over the place. If you were here during the Taboo series, uh, which was one of our most downloaded series that we've ever done, so much to the point where this fall, guess what we're doing? Taboo 2, because i got enough topics to go through. Um, <laughs> But one of them was on sexuality. And my question was not this. Not let's put our finger on this, this part of sexuality or that part of sexuality. Because if anybody else noticed, it's really easy to point fingers at other people's stuff. But our question was more holistic. Is your expression of sexuality fully submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Are you being righteous and holy? As you approach that topic, no matter how old you are or, or your marital status, I mean, it doesn't matter. So we look at the bigger pictures. So we show love to a broken world by actually being salt and light. And we have gracious conversation while holding the truth. So a part of, one of the beautiful parts of my job is I get to interact with lots of different people from the community. And they represent different faith systems and different belief systems. One of my closest friends is, is a dogmatic atheist. He thinks, I, he thinks I'm nuts. We talk about it all the time. He goes, you're crazy, bro. You're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy. And so we have this conversation. But we've been having this dialogue now for like nine years. And it's so funny. When we get together, his comment is always, like, if some of my friends knew who I was hanging out with, like, it would freak them out completely. Why are we still in the conversation? It's because when you keep your eye on another human being's soul, you realize Scripture says that it's, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So we have to follow the same way. We have to live in a world of kindness while still holding to truth. And so one of the big cultural things you'll hear today is tolerance, right? Tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. So whenever I'm interacting with somebody who I know completely disagrees with me or has a different belief system or stands in a different place politically or stands in a different place when it comes to a social issue, what I say is this, your worldview is based on tolerance. I'm going to ask you to exercise your worldview with me while I hold to what may be a very unpopular but biblical conviction because here's what I know. When I get to heaven someday, I'm going to sit in front of a trio, not a quartet. You get that? 
I'm going to sit in front of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he's going to ask me to give an account for everything that I said, whether it was popular or not, whether it was politically correct or not. I'm going to sit there, and here's the good news. I'm not going to be on your committee, and you're not going to be on mine. So we show love by having this kind of a conversation, not condoning anything that the Word of God does not say is right or wrong. I stand on that location and do my best to be salt and light in those kinds of conversations because I think everyone is worthy of an answer. They were worth dying for. That should tell me something, right? That should tell me something. Okay, next one. Why do we use the musical style we use here at CTK? Great question. Um, Because we are trying to be authentic in worship. So the Bible says, very specifically, uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so you use a different, we use different varieties at different times. Sometimes we've got a bit of a country-western sort of a flavor, depending on whether or not Andy's channeling his inner Missouri thing that's going on. Uh, Ryan's a Pacific Northwester, and so he kind of has that type of a style. So we choose styles that are popular acknowledging the fact that there's lots of different styles that are out there. And the cool thing is you have options, you know, Pandora, Spotify, you can pick your, your deal. We, we like to try and pick musical styles that we think are appealing to the people we're trying to reach. Do we get it right every week? Absolutely not. It's impossible, right? I mean, if it was me, I'd probably pick a four-part gospel harmony quartet um, with a pitch pipe because I like acapella music and I think it's cool. Um, That's just my thing. Some of you would go, what in the world is that? Uh, So it's very, very subjective with regards to what people like and don't like. What we try to do is take appeal to a broad range of musical taste at different times. And uh, here's what I believe. I believe if you're a mature believer, you should be able to worship God if there's somebody uh, playing spoons and humming something to you. because I think God has created a song in your heart, and you don't need to just worship here. I think you should be worshiping everywhere at all times. In fact, everything you lay your hand to, according to my Bible, is an act of worship. And so let's not limit it just to music, because that's just a small part of it. So, and if you'd like to make suggestions, um, one of the cool things about here is you, you get to make suggestions all you want to, but that also means you get to raise your right hand, and we will swear you in and deputize you, and you can come and be a part of the solution, which would be awesome. So... Come on up. That'd be fun. All right, next one. If you're praying for guidance, how do you know the decisions you are making are actually God's will and not yours? Hmm. First uh, John chapter 5. Just read this a couple days ago. This is the assurance we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have what we asked of Him. So we, so we have this bold assurance in approaching God. And here's what I can tell you. So... How do you know the decisions you're making are actually God's will and not yours? Well, I, I think we're making a bit of a jump there in making an assumption um, about what specifically God's will is. So let's go to that question. So um, it's not God's will if it contradicts anything in this book. I, I don't care how much you want to say that that must be God's will because God orchestrated this and this lined up with that and, 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 and she showed up at Starbucks four times in the line in front of me so it must be God's will that we should get married somewhere down the road. 
because she likes macchiatos and so do I, and so God's will is I need to pursue her with everything in it. Um, and people get a little strange when it comes to that kind of stuff. So I, I would say you have to be really, really careful with dictating what God's will is and making sure that you're seeking God's will and asking him, God, is this your will? God, is this your will? Because if you have confirmation in your heart and it lines up with Scripture that that is God's will, then you begin to make a series of decisions. And, and the Bible says we're supposed to test those decisions on a regular basis. So I'm holding my path open like this as opposed to walking the path and saying, God, I want you to endorse. Like just initial right down here at the bottom. This is my plan and I'm going to go there. Um, the Bible also cautions us. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. That's a pretty stern warning. And I don't know about you, but I can, I can make myself sound like God easily, right? God told me I'm supposed to live a life of ease and comfort. I'm pretty sure I heard him say that at some point. But then I read this, and he's always talking about what does it mean to suffer well in the midst of pain. So I have to be very, very careful that I don't superimpose my will over top of God's will. And so I would say one of the ways you know that your decisions are godly is whether or not God's blessing those decisions or not. God opposes the proud. So he'll press back against you if you're not going the right direction. So I would hold, I would hold the decisions lightly like this. Say, God, I'm going to make this in good faith and with, with, with righteousness and holiness as my, as, my, as my means of operation, and I'm going to walk this journey. And here's the thing that I think people often forget to do. Uh, God, if you close the door, I'll honor that. Instead of kick the door down and keep on walking. God has orchestrated and closed doors. That's one of the ways that Laurel and I ended up here. Um, I, pastored, I was pastoring at another church here in the county. It was so ironic because I used to be one of the biggest critics of Christ the King Community Church that you could find. I mean, I sat out in the county for years. I mean, what kind of a church is that? Nobody carries a Bible, inch deep, mile wide, just a big Walmart church. You know, what's the deal? I was the critic. And God sat in heaven and said, if you had any idea what I had planned for you, you little mouthy punk, you would so be quiet right now. But God began to close doors and open doors. And every way, in every moment, it was Laurel and my, we had to go, okay, God, we feel like we're supposed to walk through this, but check our feelings. And Lord, if you close the door, we're going to honor that. Because I know you never do anything that's not for my good and for your good purpose. So if you focus on God's will and stay the course with that, I think you're going to move in the right direction. And allow God to dictate your decisions. Don't make them arbitrarily and on your own because you'll end up walking in the wrong direction. So before you even make the decision, it's like, God, is this what you want me to do? Does this line up with your word? And should I move in that direction? Okay? I know that's not exhaustive. Maybe we'll come back to that. So some of these that are mind benders that we're not going to get a full answer on, I'm going to come back next week and try to preach a whole message on it. So, all right. Let's go to the next one. A lot of churches have a name that begins with the word first. First Presbyterian or First Baptist. Why? I don't know. Because um, they think they're first. I don't. I, uh, so traditionally, uh, uh, so I love church history, right? Um, and I'll tell you a story. So when I moved to Whatcom County, 
I ask this question because there's, I live up north. Um, I can pick on Linden because I live there, okay? Uh, you're not allowed to if you don't live there. But um, I live there, so I get to make fun of it on a regular basis. Uh, but I, I asked a friend of mine, in fact, I asked Greg Franson, who at that time was a pastor at Faith Reformed. I'm like, so you got like first, second, third, fourth. How'd that go? And unfortunately, a part of the story sometimes is that they were splits. And that's tragic. So there was first, and then there became second, there was third. Um, and it just reinforces my passion for unity in the body. It just, like that, that breaks my heart when I hear that. And I think sometimes there's good reasons to go different directions. One of the things that we've been so blessed with is in the, in the 28, 9 years, however many years we've been here, uh, we've never walked through that. We've walked through some difficult times together, but we've never had a, a split. Um, we multiplied on purpose, which has been really cool. That's why Ferndale, Sudden Valley, downtown, um, and, uh, and North Bay, that's why they're there. It's because we, we wanted to, 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 to branch out and put churches in, in neighborhoods because some people just like smaller churches. And I grew up in a church 80. I totally get that. So one of the reasons why um, sometimes it's a denominational distinctive, and it may actually be, or sometimes it's the first Presbyterian church that's located in this area. Um, I've never gone through the, the, the history, because um, I know the pastor at First Press. I mean, Doug Vanell is a wonderful guy. I love Dougie. He's awesome. Um, and we spend time together. We connect together. Uh, you can be praying for us. So on the 25th of this month, uh, this is a total aside, but my brain's going there, so I'm going to go there anyway. On the 25th of this month, we do something called Pastors Praying for Pastors. Uh, Bob Marvel and I started praying together a couple of years ago, uh, actually like two decades ago. Oh my goodness, uh, I've been here way too long. Um, and Bobby and I are really, really, really close friends. He's the pastor of Cornwall. And, and we, we do this thing every once in a while called Pastor Swap, where uh, I go over there um, and, and we preach together at Cornwall stage. And then he comes over here and preach at Christ the King stage. We haven't done it in a couple of years, but we're going to do it again in March because we really think it's important. And it's fun. It's just fun, right? So... Um, when Bobby comes, it'll just be, it'll be awesome. Um, uh, but we do that as a heart of unity, and that began to grow. Um, then we got another group of guys that we just, we nicknamed them the county elders, even though none of them feel like they, they fit that role at all, which is hilarious. Um, and uh, that's how you know somebody's qualified for something, is if they don't think they're qualified, at least in church world. So we gathered together, we started praying together, and so in a couple weeks at the FERS, um, we'll probably have somewhere between, somewhere between 70 and 100 pastors together one place, one time. Uh, we only have two rules. Uh, nobody's going to ask you for anything. And you can't pray for your church. You've got to pray for somebody else's. And we've seen unprecedented unity here in the county. I think it's one of the reasons why we see God really active here. And I'm honored uh, to be a part of it. Um, here's what I can tell you about that. Um, here at Christ the King, uh, we don't think we're first. Uh, in fact, uh, the only time we think we're first is because we're so far behind <laughs> that we're trying to catch up with everybody else. Um, that was supposed to be funny, but apparently it was just to me. So anyways, <laughs> next question. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> okay. I want to be careful because I would never want to damage. So this is a question of conviction for me. So in Scripture, um, 
Genesis chapter 1, there's a picture of, there's a picture of, a, of a wedding. And God officiates. And it's a man and a woman, which is interesting. Because if you read the Genesis account, there's all of these opposites. And God puts opposites together, um, which is why we need him. Which is why we need him. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Song of Solomon, an intimate book uh, between a man and a woman. And it's a beautiful book, and we spent a whole series walking through that. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus reiterates the story, the consistent story all the way through Scripture, where he says, you should know this, you know, and, and a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and it's, and it's a beautiful picture. And then back in Revelation at the end of the book, it's the same picture again, and God's officiating a wedding again between his son and us. My heart is always to be consistent with the word of God because that's my conviction, okay? You don't have to agree with my conviction, but that's my conviction. So because that's the pattern laid out in scripture, uh, I would have to respectfully but lovingly decline an invitation to officiate that wedding because I want to be consistent with the pattern. I hope and pray that doesn't send a message that I don't care about those people that we can't be friends and love each other and maybe, maybe uh, uh, have, a, have a difficult conversation, but out of respect for the pattern that God created in his word, out of respect for what I believe uh, the implicit teaching of scripture is in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and, and I would encourage everybody, instead of just having an opinion on this, I really would wish that some people would go and read their Bible on this. Um, because we do a really good job of pointing out, well, the Bible says that sin, and we point that. Um, the Bible points its fingers at a lot of things. Gluttony, ouch. Greed, uh, pride, judgment in certain ways. And so we have to be really, really careful that we don't forget the humanity that's attached to this. But at the same time, as someone who, who takes very seriously this, this book, um, I would have to respectfully decline that invitation simply out of respect um, and because of my conviction of, of God's pattern of uh, what his standard is for a godly relationship. And I hope, I hope you heard kindness there, not judgment. I really do, because I'd like to continue to have that conversation. I think it's an important conversation for us all to have these days. Okay? Big breath. Okay. All right. Wow, it's 10.30. That went really fast. Okay. Um, just so you know, so what we're going to do before I read this last question, we're going to take all three services because they've all been different except for the Seahawks question. Um, and we're going to splice them all together so it'll be like one and a half hours of stuff. And if you want to listen to that, be my guest. Okay, so last question. I'm 26 years old have a tumor about the size of a large grapefruit that's hollowed out the entire inside of my right pelvis. Wow. I'm sorry. How would you go about... Okay, forget the last part just for a second. Let's just pray. Lord, you said... Uh, to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep. And so I don't know if this is a brother or a sister, but their pain matters to me and us. 
God, we ask in Jesus' name because you said we could. We would ask that you would heal them. We link our arms and our hearts together, and we pray, Jesus, if it would be your will, that you would touch them. And God, we are not fussy. If you would do it medically or miraculously, we don't care. We just ask. Would you, would you show up so big for them that it would be undeniable how precious they are to you even as they walk through this difficult season? God, we ask that in the midst of the pain that you would allow them to shine brightly for you, that they would put their hope, trust, and faith in you even more so. But God, we come humbly before you as your children. And we, we do what scripture tells us to do. God, we, 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 we bear each other's burdens right now. God, we ask, would you put some of this burden on our shoulders so we could lift just a little so they could feel the love of you through us. God, would you help? Would you heal? Would you restore? Would you give us a reason to brag about you again for the sake of our sister and for your glory in Jesus' name? Amen. Okay. Okay, now, uh, how would you go about processing that, processing that in your walk with God? I'm not doubting my faith, but I want to strengthen it. Wow. What a beautiful perspective. I just found a new hero, Christ the King Church. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, uh, so last week, um, give me a second. Sorry, turned 50, everything went downhill from there. Uh, First Peter chapter 4, therefore, since Christ suffered also with the same attitude. Did you get that? Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. I love that. I love that. It also says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when in his joy, glory is revealed. I have no idea how it's going to work, but God wants to bring glory to himself through this, and he's going to use you to do it. So I would say this, you need to predetermine your belief in God before you walk through this situation. You need to believe in your heart that God is for you, that he is with you, and that he will even use suffering to bring about his glory and his fame, and he's going to do it through you. And you're going to have an opportunity to touch people and share with people the light of Christ inside of yourself to people that no one else will have an opportunity to touch. And so the fact you're going to determine on the front end that God is going to be your most powerful ally as opposed to your most convenient enemy, that is beautiful. And I know this is difficult, but Scripture says this, but rejoice that you get to participate in the suffering of Christ. There's actually joy and grace for people who are walking through this. Ask Him for it. 
Say, God, I don't know how I'm going to find joy in this, but I know you can. So show me how to have joy. Show me how to live in faith. I'm not doubting. I'm going with this according to what is right in front of me. And so I'm going to choose and never give up on the thought that Jehovah Rophe, the God who heals, still does. So I'll close with this because I think it's an interesting perspective. So, um, so if you've been around here for a little while, you know my wife has Bietti's crystalline dystrophy, cystoid macular edema. Laurel battles blindness every single day. Um, if you saw her, you'd have no idea because she's the best actress in Whatcom County. Um, she's incredible with her ability. Years ago when she was first diagnosed, I took her to see my prayer warrior. Her name was Elizabeth Sutherland. Elizabeth was 106 when she passed away. She literally prayed for me every single day of my life until she died. Um, she was an incredible gift. We went to see her. I thought she could be an encouragement to Laurel. And Elizabeth gave us a perspective that has shaped the way we've approached this process our entire life. Instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry, or that must be really difficult, Elizabeth took those beautiful, old, 100-plus-year-old hands, and she grabbed a hold of Laurel, and she said, oh, my sweet daughter, God must think an awful lot of you to allow you to carry this weight. Never heard that one before. So I would say this to my 26-year-old brother and or sister. God must think an awful lot of you to allow you to carry this weight. And here's the beautiful hope. You do not carry this weight alone. He carries it. And now we get to carry it. If you're here, would you please come and say hi? Because I would, I would just love, I'd love to hug you. <laughs> I'd love to pray with you and I'd love to make sure you don't get lost. Because now you've trusted your story to us, and we'd love an opportunity to carry it. Okay, it's 1038. We've got to be done. Normally, at the end of the service, we'd pray and say, thank you, Jesus. Uh, I'm just going to say, Jesus, thank you for being with us as a part of this. Thank you for being a part of the conversation. If you need prayer for anything, the prayer team will be up here at the front, and we should probably do this again sometime. Love you guys. God bless you. Have a great morning. <laughs> Ask me anything. Here we go. All right, question number one. You talked last week about building relationships with people who believe differently than we do. What about dating someone who doesn't share our beliefs? Um. Okay. Uh, so the entire act of dating, I, I have another word for it. It's called fraud. So um, You know you all did it, right? It's just like, no, I dress this way all the time. No, you don't. Um, you don't act that way or talk that way either. So, um, but the, the, the idea of dating is that you're preparing for a place when you enter into God's picture of a marriage relationship. And so uh, you may have a disagreement with regards to belief systems, but I would encourage you in, you know, in, in, in this one. So, um, Scripture talks very, very specifically about not being unequally yoked. I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the reason that God says that is because he wants to protect both of your hearts. 
Okay, when you're doing this, when you're dating someone who doesn't share your belief, then another word for it, right? It's like missionary dating, right? I'm going to try and show them Jesus, which is a good thing. The problem is this. They're probably going to make that decision based on your relationship with them, not their relationship with God. Amen. Because when we're dating, we're trying to actually figure out how do, we, how do we please that other person so we can put our relationship and our lives together. And so I don't think it's ever wise to go into a dating relationship thinking that that's going to lead to marriage with the agenda that somehow I'm going to be able to quote unquote convert that other person because I believe, I don't believe that's authentic in its expression. And so I would say this as well. Um, years ago, this lady from our church gave me this beautiful poem and it's called, uh, at the title of it, it's called I Sit Alone in Church. And it's her story of her journey of, of, of marrying somebody who did not have the same belief system as she did, and she grieves throughout the poem by saying, I just want to share the deepest part of my soul with that person. And I would encourage you to be thinking about that. If you pursue this relationship, the reality is you're not going to be able to, unless they come to into full agreement with you, you're not going to ever be able to share the deepest part of your soul. And that's the beauty of marriage. That's what it's supposed to provide, is a beautiful place where you can share the deepest part of your soul. Um, so I'd also encourage this. I th I'd throw this out there as, as people are... Um, are contemplating this whole singleness marriage whole thing. I heard this statement one time from a very wise person. So uh, they said, I would rather want what I don't have than have what I don't want. Amen. And you should want Jesus more than anything. And if you want Jesus more than anything, you should want to be in a relationship with somebody who also wants Jesus more than anything, including you. Because that's the beauty of that marriage relationship. And I would point you towards Ephesians chapter 5 as the model for that relationship. That that's, that's the deepest part of our soul, being able to share love and respect husband and wife in that particular context. And so friendship-wise, connecting with people who don't believe the same thing you do, absolutely, that's a part of what we're supposed to. When it comes to dating someone, I believe you're on a path that's going to lead you to a place of, of disconnection and heartbreak. So I think wisdom would say uh, it's not a wise idea. Okay? You, if, you, if someone in the room would just smile every once in a while <laughs> and even nod, even if you don't agree with me, that'd be cool too. Okay, all right. I'm looking for some kind of affirmation. All right, all right. Okay, the Bible says to honor your, uh, your father and mother, but how do you honor and respect a parent who continuously puts their self in life, poor life choices before being a parent? Okay, so let's get to the heart of that. Exodus chapter 20, 10 commandments, right? Big deal. So it's a non-negotiable for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, the 10 commandments, even though they are Old Testament, it's your Bible, right? So honoring your father and mother precludes and stands over top of whether or not they're honorable. We get that? Amen. And the way we look at that is Jesus' love for us precludes and goes over top of the fact that everybody has one thing in common in the room, including the guy with the microphone, we're all sinners. So we're not honorable, but God honors us by allowing us to even have the idea of a relationship with him. And so I would encourage you to look at it this way. You have to find something that's honorable about your mom and dad. It may be a fact that the only honorable thing you can find about them is the fact that God used their relationship to bring you in the world to live for Jesus. And that's worthy of honor. 
that God used their lives, as broken as they may be, to create you so that you can live in a God-honoring way. Uh, you know, what's interesting is, 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 is interesting. I think we teach people we teach people how we're going to model that. And so I would say if you're a parent and this is the situation you're in, you're going to teach your kids how to treat you by the way you treat your parents. I got one really quiet amen in the back corner. Thank you. Um, <laughs> appreciate it, brother. <laughs> because we model that, right? And so if you want to be honored, you need to model honoring for them even though they may not be honorable. This commandment in Scripture is directed at your as a person, there's no caveat around whether or not your mom and dad were good people, honorable people, or even followers of Jesus. It's not there. So this is about your response towards them, and we're supposed to model it in the same way that God gave response towards us, which is grace, truth, and forgiveness. Make sense? So honor them. That's what your Bible says to do, and it will go well with you. That's what the Bible also says. Okay, next question. What do I say to people who stand on the corner with those signs saying, repent or burn in hell? Um, start with good morning. Um, I don't. So every human being, whether or not uh, you agree with them, is worthy of honor. And they're worthy of respect simply because they were worth dying for. That, that's what this whole book's about, right? And so I, I, I would encourage you, if you decide to engage in conversation, the first thing is, so we're, we're supposed to pray for people, whether we agree with their method or not. Um, so we're supposed to pray. So let's do that first. I think that should be the first reaction in all things. If you do have a conversation, I would encourage you to try this. I'm not going to say how it's going to go for you. But if you can keep Jesus in the center of the conversation, that seems to diffuse. Not always. I think uh, you should also recognize this. I was told this a long time ago. If you don't reason your way into a conversation, it's impossible to reason your way back out of it again. And so I, I really believe that, that it may not necessarily be about engaging for the sake of correction because it's probably not going to go very well. But to be able to look at that and say, okay, how has God called me to interact with other people? And how can I have a gracious conversation so that I can engage with somebody so they can see a different side of Jesus, so that they can be honoring? I mean, Scripture says, uh, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And so to me, this is just my personal opinion, yelling and screaming at people on a street corner is not the way Jesus would have gone about having that conversation. And so I would look at it not necessarily as somebody else is doing something wrong, but how can I do something right? How can I be that gracious person that extends a, a heartfelt conversation so that, I mean, let your conversation always, we talked about it last week, be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you can make, give an answer to everyone. So to me, I look at that as a challenge to how can I live differently in the world and provide a different picture of Jesus um, than standing on a corner shouting at cars as they're going by. Okay, moving on. Um, <laughs> next question. The requester of this is in this service. Okay. So this question actually showed up last, in the last service. Um, I'm 26 years old, have a tumor about the size of a large grapefruit, 
that's hollowed out the entire inside of my right pelvis. I'm going to do the same thing in this service that I did in the last one. Let's just stop. Okay, I'm not a theologian, I'm a pastor. So when I hear that, my heart just breaks. And yours should too. So we're going to do what our Bible tells us to do. We're going to bear each other's burdens. Okay. So I don't know who you are, and I don't know if you're a brother or a sister. But I'd so love to pray for you. And we're not going to be fussy about how God goes about doing this. But we want you to know that your church loves you. So we're going to get up underneath that burden and we're going to lift it just a little bit so you can breathe. And I'm going to ask all of you to do that with me, okay? So would you pray with me right now? Father God, uh, you know the name, the time, the details, the diagnosis, the doctors. More than anything, you know, you know this beautiful son or daughter's heart. So God, we're going to do what you told us to do in James chapter 5. We're going to come together and we're going to link arms and we're going to pray. And God, I'm praying right now. Lord, we are so not fussy, but we believe you are still Jehovah Rophe, the God who heals. And so we're asking God in faith believing that you would heal our brother or our sister. God, we don't care how you do it, medically or miraculously, we are so not fussy. All we're asking, God, is for an opportunity to give you glory in this circumstance. God, would you give us a reason to brag about how good you are? And right now, I pray that this person would be so wrapped in your love that they would know that God cares and we care and they will not walk this journey alone. So, Father God, would you do what we cannot do? Would you bring healing and peace, wisdom and discernment into this situation? And we will trust you. And We pray these things in the powerful and healing name of Jesus and the family of God at Christ the King agreed together in faith and said, Okay, how would you go about processing that in your walk with God? I'm not doubting my faith, but I want to strengthen it. Wow. I don't know who you are, but you are my hero. And I, boy, I'd love to hug you. Sheesh. So for those of you that are not, you're new, this is normal, just so you know. <laughs> How would you go about processing that in your walk with God? So we talked last week um, about 1 Peter. Um, let me see if I can just get there really, 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 really quick. So 1 Peter chapter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So somehow, some way, and I wish I could tell you exactly how this is going to work, but God is going to use this for his glory. I think he already has. 
Because we got an opportunity to do what God called us to do this morning. And you're the cause of that blessing in our life to be able to love you like we're supposed to. So, on the front end of suffering, which is I really believe is what you're asking, is that as you come into this, what do I do? You need to decide on the front end, like we talked about last week, from 1 Peter chapter 4, whether God is going to be your most convenient enemy or your most powerful ally. It appears you've already chosen he's going to be your most powerful ally. Thank you for that beautiful example. But to believe that right now God is in this with you, that he's with you in the midst of the pain, that God did not separate himself from your suffering, but that he's actually right there and that he feels it. That he feels it and he's going to walk with you through it as well. This passage says, but rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ. So uh, Hebrews says we do not have a high priest that's immune from this, but they can sympathize with our weakness. So God feels that he feels the weight in your stomach. He feels the indecision that you're feeling, trying to figure out what you're going to do. He's there with you in that. So embracing who he is and his presence in this process is an unbelievably important, important part of wholeness. As well, you have to pray when you're walking through this, God, this is not a natural frame of circumstance for joy, but I'm going to ask that you give that to me. Teach me joy so that I can shine like a light. Whether I'm in the treatment room, whether I'm in the doctor's office, whether I'm interacting with nurses, whether or not you just touch me and heal me, ultimately what we're praying in these moments is that God's going to give us joy because we're all going to hurt at different times. And your faith is strengthened when you invite God into it. And you say, God, I have no idea how I'm going to get through this day, but I'm going to walk it with you, not without you. Um... So years ago, Laurel and I were gifted with a very, very different perspective. Um, so those of you that know, Laurel has uh, Bietti's crystalline dystrophy, cystoid macular edema. So she struggles. It's a battle against blindness every single day. Um, if you met her, you wouldn't even know because she's amazing at being able to, she sees with her ears. It's phenomenal. Um, and she's so gracious in the way she handles it. Years ago, uh, when she was first diagnosed, we had an opportunity to go and see a prayer warrior. Her name was Elizabeth Sutherland. Elizabeth died when she was 106. Um, she prayed for me every day of my life. And I miss it. But I th believe she's still interceding for me because I need all the help I can get. But, uh, I took Laurel and we went to see Elizabeth. And instead of hearing the oh, I'm so sorry for you, sweetheart, or boy, that must be really, really difficult, or you must be very scared. Instead, uh, Elizabeth gave us a completely different perspective. Uh, she took those beautiful, weathered, 100-plus-year-old hands, and she looked at Laurel, and she said, oh, my sweet daughter, God must think an awful lot of you to allow you to carry this weight. So whoever you are, God must think an awful lot of you to carry this weight. Because I can tell by your question already, you're going to represent Jesus so well through this. And your church family will be praying for your miracle. So if you're here, like, if you would actually come, I'd love to talk with you afterwards because I don't want you to fall through the cracks. Okay? Whoo, that's heavy. Okay, next question. What's the difference between a tithe and an offering? Wow, good question. That's great. Um, so the book of Malachi says bring the whole tithe into the, into the storehouse. Um, a tithe is a tenth of your income. Um, 
and we use that as an, as an Old Testament benchmark, people often go, oh, cool, you know, like, well, that's a lot. 10% a lot. I mean, you can go New Testament with me if you want to, but that just means God demands everything from you because uh, Jesus gave everything. If you want to go New Testament giving, be my guest. That'd be awesome. Um, we don't have to, have to worry about another thing. We can probably feed the whole county for that. Um, so the difference between a tithe and an offering. So a tithe is what we do regularly every single week. Um, uh, the Corinthians talks about the fact that on a, on a regular basis, you're supposed to set aside a specific sum for God's work. That's just what God says. We don't apologize for that. Um, so that's a tithe. An offering would be something that you give above and beyond that because God stirs in your heart to do something, uh, whether it's to a church or an individual, but we do that. And there's also another category, which is alms, which is specifically for the poor because God speaks regularly in scripture, especially in the book of Isaiah, that we're supposed to, that we're supposed to love and feed the poor. That's just a part of our, that we talked about that in last week's message. So the difference is this, the tithe is regular, 10% discipline giving over, above and beyond that, alms specifically for the poor. And God says we're supposed to be generous people for one reason. When God gave, he gave generously and he gave all. So he set the benchmark for us and um, yeah, that's the difference. And it's good. So you can look to that uh, in Malachi. You can look for that uh, in Mark. Uh, the first part of, uh, of, of the book of Mark, you'll find lots on that. And then uh, first, first Corinthians as well. Okay. All right. Next question. How do you help someone who's open to the gospel but can't get over having to admit they are a sinner? In their mind, they're a good person. Ooh, that's a good question, too. How do you help someone who's open to the gospel but can't get over having to admit they're a sinner? In their mind, they're a good person. So I, I actually used to think that. I'm a good person. I think we all like to think we're good people, right, at the core. And I'm not sure there's anything wrong with thinking you're a good person. But at the same time, uh, the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it's a humble act when you have to admit that you're not nearly as good as you'd like to think you are. I remember really believing that I was a good person, and I was offended by the book of Romans when it had the audacity to say there's no one righteous, not even one. Nobody in the room gets to wear a white hat, including the guy with the microphone. We all get black hats. Jesus is the only one with a white hat if life was an old school Western. If you get the picture, you know, that I'm trying to paint. We're, we're, we're not good. And inherently at the core of ourselves, we have to come to some level of admission about that. That left to our own devices, there's an evil core in the bottom of who we are. And you just give me enough time or enough opportunity and I'll prove it to you. So scripture then, which we at times struggle for it to be the authority, presses back against us and says, no, you need to recognize the fact that you're not good. And in doing that, you actually take a humble position and say, okay, God, if I'm not good, then I need help to have a relationship with God, my heavenly father. And Jesus, through his death on the cross and resurrection, actually opened that relationship so that we could have the opportunity to actually be engaged with God in that way. And a part of coming to that place is that we have, to, we have to learn humbly who we actually are. And we learn that we're a sinner. And then we open our hearts so that God can save us. And then we begin to pursue the life and the identity that God says we really are. Because as crazy as it is that this book says, I'm a sinner, after I come to Jesus, it actually has the audacity to say I'm a saint. I'll struggle with that identity, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I mean, that's unbelievable. 
And so I would say a part of this is understanding what, what, what does good mean? Like good in comparison to who? Let's face it, I think we could all say, well, I'm good compared to an axe murderer, right? <laughs> I think I'm good there. How about somebody who's really godly and really holy? Are you going to come up short? I probably would. So it really depends on a relative scale. And who are we really comparing ourselves to? We're comparing ourselves to the standard of Jesus who lived a perfect life and was without sin. So I would say this is really a question of humility. And what you need to do is model for your friend what it means to be humble. And ask the kinds of questions. You're not the Holy Spirit, right? You're not nobody in the room. We're not the junior Holy Spirit. So we can't bring conviction onto somebody, but we can share our journey as to how we arrived at the conclusion that, that actually I'm not nearly as good as I think I am. And I have moments when it just shows up. And if you don't think you do, go for a ride on the guide sometime and see what comes out of your mouth. <laughs> Case closed. Okay. All right. Just commit murder in your head everywhere. Just ba 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 ba. That's what's happening. Okay. And by the way, if you don't admit to that, you just lied. Welcome to the club. Okay, so I'm getting, we're getting really tired. Okay, as a teen, how can I get wisdom when most church messages are directed at adults? That's a good question, too. Um, how can I get wisdom when most church messages are directed at adults? Well, first of all, I want you to know this. Um, the reason that we, that we plan our messages the way we do is because we actually think you're, we actually think you're really, really smart. And we think you can swim in this room with everybody else. And there may be pieces that don't necessarily apply, but we believe all scripture is God-breathed. It's beneficial for you. So I want to encourage you to be doing this. Uh, would you fact-check me? That changed in, in recent years in audiences. You guys can Google faster than I can talk. And so if you're a younger person in your here, I would love to throw open a challenge to you. You are welcome to fact check every single message that I ever preach. I'd love to have that kind of a conversation with you because we believe your voice needs to be heard. We believe that, that all things are beneficial because we base them out of this particular, uh, this particular book. So there's going to be some weeks when you're going to have to be patient with us as adults, okay? Because we're going to talk in a different way. Um, but I want you to know we care about you being in this room. It's one of the reasons why we believe that from, you know, from about sixth grade on on that we have relevant material that can go for that. And that's why we have, don't have alternatives in that area. We actually bring them into the room because we think, we think you're important and that you need to be here. And I'll do my best. And if you ever think that I just shot way over top of your head, I'd like to hear that. Because if this is supposed to be a family, you should be able to come and say, hey, Grant, I think you just zinged one right over top of my head. What were you talking about? Um, I'd, I'd love to hear that because you matter. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. Another way, just so hold on. Oh, can, we, can we go back for a second? Can we just go back? Can we go back? There we go. Okay, just for a second. Um, how can I get we wisdom? So, I'm just like, duh, Grant. Come on, grab a hold of that one, right? I'd encourage you to get a Bible that you can understand and spend your time soaking in this. It's important. The Bible says, you know, your word have I hidden my heart that I may not sin against you. So taking this and putting it into your heart is really, really important. In fact, I would encourage you to do this. I mean, 
Why, why, why listen to a guy with a microphone who has limited human wisdom when you can go to the source of all wisdom yourself? And Scripture has a lot to say about how you and God has a heart for you, and I believe you can understand everything that's in this book. That's why God wrote it to you. Okay? So let's make sure we go to the primary source of wisdom, too. All right? Okay, next question. What does it mean in Exodus 20 when it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Okay? So... Um, Old Testament law had very, very specific rules and guidelines for the nation of Israel. We believe that, that many of those have moral substance and, and need to be observed in a, a day. I mean, the Ten Commandments, I think, are more, more relevant today than they've ever been before. And yet we go to the, the spirit of the law as well as the heart of the law with that with regards to God is calling us to have a Sabbath, okay? My Sabbath is Friday because I work Sundays, Okay? And we don't want to be legalistic. The question is, do you abide by the principle from Scripture about Sabbath? Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest. When you specifically take a step away from your life to rest in God's presence and give Him your full attention. Okay? And so I want to encourage you to have the principle of Sabbath. It's important for you. God did not model Sabbath for us on the seventh day because He was tired. Okay? God has limitless energy. He created everything. He didn't lose an ounce of sweat creating the world because God is infinitely powerful. But he modeled something for us as believers, which is you're not. You're not infinitely powerful. You need rest. And that's why God keeps saying over and over again, I want you to actually learn the practice and the rhythm. Six days you work, one day you rest in him. And so uh, it's not just about doing nothing. It's about intentionally connecting with God on that day so that God has an opportunity to speak into the space of your life. Because let's face it, we're just way too busy. Like we just go, 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 go. We're like hamsters on a wheel, running fast, going nowhere. And God, for out of love and protection, says, I want you to put this discipline in your life. I want you to take one day and you give it to me. So you rest in it. The root word for Sabbath is savor. So when was the last time you can point back to a day and say, on that day, I tasted life? The Bible says, taste and see, the Lord is good. When was the last time you actually tasted it? It's like, Grant, I don't have a chance to. Like, I just, you know, I, you know eat, go. You know, it's the same thing every single day, right? Wake up at 6, get out there. I'm in the car by 6.30. I got to get here, combing my hair, doing the thing in my face while I'm looking in the mirror while I'm driving. I'm just like, and I get to the end of the day, and I fall into the chair at the end of the night, just like, ha. Ah. That's not a life. So God says, I want my people to model a rhythm of rest because it's good for you. So you set apart that day and you keep it holy by resting in God's good pleasure. And it's a discipline and it's hard. Okay? All right. 12, 13. Um, I just messed up and slept with my boyfriend. What do we do now? Hmm. The Bible says, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we do that. We confess our sin to each other. James chapter 5 says, confess your sin to each other so you can be healed. I would say to this couple, um, if you're both repentant, it would be important for you to step outside of your relationship for the sake of accountability because you're probably, I mean, you fell alone. You're probably not going to be able to find safety and holiness alone. 
So you need to bring someone else into the relationship who can mentor you, hold you accountable. But it really starts with a heart of confession. Confessing to God and confessing to each other. Uh, l- let me speak to the guy. I have a different set of standards when it comes to, when it comes to men. I think you're supposed to lead. I think you are. You're supposed to model the relationship that Jesus has for you. So I, if you're the guy in the room, you need to step up and confess to your girlfriend that you took advantage and acted in an inappropriate way towards a daughter of the Most High God. And for that, you're sorry. And you need to be forgiven. To the daughter, I would remind you, um, you are not a princess because your heavenly father, or because you're not a princess because your dad is a prince. You're a princess because your heavenly father is a king. And you are worthy of love and respect. And both of you can see and experience God's forgiveness. And you can walk free. And I would encourage you to not let your past or one mistake dictate your relationship. Instead, make the decision to enter into complete purity with each other from this point forward. Accept the Lord's forgiveness and keep him in the center of your relationship from here on. Okay. Wow. Final question. Man, these guys are killing me. Why does God take good people? Why does he take them from us? When I hear a question like that, what I see is a person who's hurting. And I see them trying to grapple with the fact that they have a perception right now that God is a taker. That God took somebody from me as some form of punishment. And what I can say is that's not the way God works. That's not the way God works. God is not punitive in that way. So there's no easy answer to why does God take good people. And that's why a belief in the sovereignty of God and a high trust in God is an absolute essential to not losing your mind here on the face of this broken planet. You have to believe in your heart that God's ways are perfect, even though they're almost completely, it's so hard to understand. I mean, what, what does scripture say? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I would add something to that. My timing is not your timing. Uh, when I read that, it takes me back to a place. You know, Laurel and I, uh, we lost her dad. We lost her brother. We lost her 15-year-old niece. Just boom, boom, boom. So you're not immune if you sit at the front of a church with a microphone on. So we lived with this pain. And I'll be honest with you. We've answered that question. We've asked that question. Why did God take dad? Why did God take Alan? Why did God take Tanya? Here's what I know. It's not punishment. In fact... For those of us who live in the world where we see a lot of pain all the time, sometimes I wonder whether or not it's protection. (laughs) Does that make sense? I don't have an easy answer, and I'm not just going to stick a Band-Aid on the bullet hole of your soul because you've obviously lost somebody. Here's what I would implore you to remember. 
God the Father knows exactly how it feels to lose somebody he loved. He did that for us. Gave his son, the only good person, to die on a cross, take our sin on his sinless, blameless soul so that we could have a relationship with him so that when we walk, when we walk through real life stuff, we don't walk through it alone. So let's not put God in, a, in that kind of a different category that he's never felt this before. My Bible says very, very different. You can't read the end of the book of Luke and go through the crucifixion and somehow tell yourself God does not understand pain, loss, or grief. That's why scripture describes him as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He gets it. So the why? I don't know. And I'm not going to pretend that I do. But he gets it, and he's with you. I know that doesn't make the pain go away, but it comforts me. All right. We uh, are out of time. We had almost 100 questions come in before we even got to the first service. I think your question's worthy of an answer, and if I didn't get to it today, I'm sorry. I, there's only so many hours in the day and so many minutes in an hour, as much as I wish I could stretch them. I hope you know that God gave you your question for a reason, and I want to encourage you to go and find an answer. That's why we show up every six days, because we want to try and be available to everybody. More than anything today, I, I, I hope you've heard my heart. I hope it came out. We would never want to do damage with flippant answers. And I hope, I hope you saw some way that this is it for me. It's all I got. It's also all I need. And I want to encourage you, we're going to post all three of the services because they were all different and they all had different questions um, and different levels of pain and angst in the room while we were walking through them. And so I want to encourage you, uh, you may want to go back and listen to Saturday night and Sunday morning earlier today uh, because it would give us an opportunity to walk through those things together. I want to thank you for being uh, gracious and loving. Uh, I love this church. There's not a lot, I, I don't know of a lot of environments where you could do this kind of thing uh, and, and realize that people are going to see you as a person and not just as a pastor. So thank you for coming and having the dialogue today. And normally I would say we should probably stand and pray, um, but I've been praying every single second for the last 40 minutes or so, and I know some of you have been too, because I've watched you look, oh Jesus, help him now. Um, <laughs> And I'm thankful for that. So thank you for coming and spending the last 65 minutes with us. God bless you. Next weekend, what we're going to do is take the most, uh, the most powerful questions that we got all weekend long, and we'll preach a whole message and take as many as we can, uh, hopefully with a little bit more prep. So I love you guys. God bless you. Have an amazing weekend.